Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Audrey Simons and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-hosts. Audra Simon. Hey, Hi. how are you doing, Rachel? I'm well. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. In the, I'm off in the Malvern, Worcestershire area of the world. Ooh, or Worcestershire, depending on how you want to say it. Like wor- Worcestershire? Worcestershire? Worcestershire. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Horrifying. All right. Well, let me let me introduce our, our our this this week's guest before I embarrass myself anymore. Uh, please welcome to the podcast Andrew Boreen. He is executive director with Flashpoint. Uh, he's previously led private sector intelligence teams at IBM, Symantec, and uh, he's also served as a former senior official in the U.S. intelligence community, where he led strategic operational planning for foreign counterterrorism on behalf of the White House National Security Council. Wow, what a background. Welcome. Welcome, Andrew. So excited to have you. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for having me. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast for a while. You've had some real real heavy hitters, people I look up to a great deal, including uh, Bill Evanina and Chris Krabs uh, and Megan Stiffel. So um, thanks for all the work you're doing, uh, having people talking about security, uh, thinking about things like insider threat, cybersecurity. And then uh, I really do think when we have this conversation about open source intelligence, uh, your listeners will also get some uh, a feel for kind of a more holistic even understanding of what we can do together uh, as defenders. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Andrew, can also, I ask you recently, I, you informed us. Yes, yes. Yes. Oh, no, I want to let you know, I, I think it's pronounced oh. Ucestashire. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. way, way off, way, way just, off for me. Uh, just remember yeah. when, when, when you spell Wales, it doesn't have an H in it. Just so you know. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> so. As a, as a, in- as a uh, U.S. immigrant <laughs> to the United Kingdom, these are the things that I need to know. <laughs> they are. They absolutely are. Absolutely are. Excellent. Let's jump into open source intelligence since you opened the door on that one. Um, I believe recently you were in Ukraine and um, representing your new firm. Would you be able to talk mm-hmm. a bit, you know, what you found, findings, and, you know, how it relates to open source intelligence and how you see that mm-hmm. coming forward and how we can learn from the situation there. Yeah. Uh, first off, I just want to make a, a quick disclaimer that anything I say is really my own opinion, uh, not that of any former uh, agency I was affiliated with or the U.S. government and definitely not necessarily Flashpoint Intelligence, uh, the firm. Um, but I, I am the executive director uh, of Flashpoint. Uh, I work uh, really heavily in the national security intelligence component of the company. It's a threat intelligence firm and a data company. Uh, and um, it is one of one of many uh, kind of emerging new OSINT providers that are commercial companies. There's also kind of non-governmental folks. And certainly in the last couple of years, we've just seen a ton of activity across U.S. government uh, with OSINT. That's how we pronounce it. Uh, and in the under U.S. law, it's actually this is funny. There's been a debate for over a decade. Right. Um, open source intelligence under U.S. law for it to be a U.S. intelligence community activity. It is open dash source space intelligence OSINT. 
there's a there's a statute uh, that defines it. There's a classified requirement for intelligence, and then you use unclassified information, whether publicly available or commercially available, uh, to answer that requirement. Right. Um, and one of the really great things about being at Flashpoint here is um, we're not we are a commercial OSINT provider, right? And, and within that framework, uh, that puts us in the ability to really um, leverage all kinds of tools and resources, uh, currently serving more than 50 governments that are U.S. security partner and NATO security partner allies, uh, and 15 of the largest 15 financial services institutions in the United States. Um, so that's kind of the background there. And, and I will, you're right. Uh, so, so I think for some of those reasons, uh, I was asked to be the keynote presenter at uh, Ukraine's largest um, uh, technology executive gathering. Uh, it was a decade since they started the conference. Um, this year it was in Lviv, which is pretty far to the West, very close to Poland, um, for obvious reasons. Ukraine's actively in a hot war. Uh, they've been uh, aggressively, and, and, and frankly, in my opinion, uh, really horrifically invaded by uh, a Russian uh, government under Vladimir Putin that is waging modern irregular warfare, hybrid warfare, cyber warfare, uh, and frankly, what some in, in the NATO community are referring to as cognitive warfare, right? Attacking the psychology even of individual actors through cyberspace, right? Um, and in, you know, in, in the U.S., that might be called stalking, right? Or harassment. But uh, I had conversations with some IT executives that said they're getting um, really horrific comments on uh, posts they said. I talked to an American journalist. Uh, Joe Lindsley has been reporting on the ground since the invasion. He's one of the few journalists that actually, uh, I guess I would say, assessed that the Ukrainians would fight. And he said it over and over again until the February uh, of 2022. And he's been on the ground every day since. He said he'll stay in Ukraine uh, until the victory is won. He's on 500 plus days of continuous reporting. Um, and I actually, I did find that rather inspirational, right? So here's a nation that is in a hot war and they are keeping the economy functioning, right? As best they can. They're a perfect example of resilience in the face of modern hybrid conflict, right? What the Russians call special military operation, I think collectively, if you read uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg's comments, uh, is is a absolute violation of international law. It's uh, in the invasion of a sovereign, uh, you know, self-identified state, and with democratic processes. And um, so, so for me personally, I found it uh, a great humbling honor to have been invited to be the the, the keynote speaker on uh, the second day, which was their business focus uh, in Ukraine on the ground. And and I just I will say this before we continue the interview. Uh, if you want to talk about open source intelligence, Ukraine is, you know, its own flashpoint, right? Not as a term for the company I work for, but Ukrainian operators in the military, in the critical infrastructure sectors, um, and also in commercial developers and commercial solutions if you're building a, a, a social network, right? Or a solution for businesses. You, you ha they have to be thinking all across the front of defense of human espionage against them, of cyber exploits against them, of spear phishing against them, of whaling against them. And then um, and then and then the ones and zeros. Right. Uh, the, the fact that um, there are offensive capabilities built and being deployed against every single possible vulnerability or attack surface uh, that the Ukrainians have in cyberspace. So 
uh, again, they're, they're very brave people. Um, and I'm just really humbled that they asked me to be there. So can you talk about any kind of success that they're having in this area? Absolutely. I think um, when we think about Ukraine and, and as an example of OSINT, right? Um, I think when you, you know, when Chris Krebs was talking on your show, uh, I guess, I don't know when that was earlier this year, uh, he was talking about how 80 plus to 90 plus percent of uh, information is now becoming in the open source environment, right? It's not classified that's going to inform U.S. critical infrastructure operators, right, or the U.S. government on what's happening. A lot of it is out there in open source, uh, probably available, commercially available, or, you know, independent security researchers getting information. And that was for cyber. But in Ukraine, as I said, they're getting attacked in physical space, right? They're getting attacked in psychological space. They're getting attacked in cyberspace. All of the possible vectors uh, they're being hit by. And so OSINT for them is really already integrated for public-private partnership, for uh, cross-sector in the government, for uh, critical infrastructure providers, right? So uh, think the big ones, energy and space, right? Things that uh, the, the British here call uh, position navigation timing, PNT. We call it GPS, Global Positioning System in the US. Those are vital assets, right, for the military to do targeting and to uh, get accurate grids to avoid uh, incoming missiles or drone attacks. Um, the public often is reporting in open source in real time on social media or on Signal or on other platforms, uh, providing tips on movement of adversaries or enemy formations, right? Hey, we saw Russian tanks moving this direction at this time, which can then be verified open source uh, using commercial imagery. Um, we're seeing a real proliferation in Ukraine of non-governmental organizations being uh, a part of a community of observers using open source intelligence and, and so, so kind of what I want to think through is like, think of an example of something horrible happening in Ukraine. Um, and, and, you know, for example, we know that atrocities are being committed by Russians and Russian proxies. And I should say, perhaps we have to wait. The lawyer in me says, okay, we'll wait until uh, a record is created and we can have accountability in a, a respected multilateral tribunal setting. But evidence is being gained that I have seen that leads me to believe that there are atrocities being committed, Right. Um, and so the open source intelligence can kind of work across a whole spectrum if that's the bang, right? Back in counterterrorism, we would talk about left of bang, right of bang, right? You want to get ahead and you want to work on the left side of that. So open source intelligence is providing intelligence. It's providing traditional military intelligence, order of battle, right? Which formations, which Russian commanders, which units, which patches um, is doing the same for things that used to be in the Prigozhin network, Right. Uh, Wagner forces. Where are their formations? These are, you know, what we might often call uh, illegal combatants, right? If they're bearing arms and they're not in uniform and they're violating the laws of war, um, it can expose and reveal some of that. It can provide uh, intelligence on intent. If they're communicating on an open platform and it's observed, right? If some, some soldier sends back data um, to their friends or family in Russia, that information, if it's available publicly, can be seen and then used by uh, Ukrainian forces for self-defense or, or for uh, kinetic activity. Then there's warning. And I experienced this myself. Um, this was really, um, so I'm a combat veteran from Iraq. Uh, I participated in the 2003 invasion as a Marine uh, second lieutenant working on the staff of General Mattis uh, back when he was a two-star division commander of the first Marine division. Um, 
Unlike Iraq, which very much in that time was major combat operations uh, and, and movement, uh, Ukraine, we, we had an air raid. Uh, and it turned out it was a MiG launch. But I got notice of the air raid through a group signal chat I had been invited to. And that scooped even the official uh, air raid app alert that is sanctioned by the government. That, but, but, that, but back to that app. That is informed by OSINT, and then they, the government's a little slower because they want to validate that with radar, with things that are classified collect, so that they're providing accurate vector of when the attack will arrive. Where is it headed? Is it a MiG? Is it uh, a collection of drones? Is it a missile? Right? Um, and what kind of blew me away is almost like a pizza order, you know, or like a delivery order, because then after the initial tip on the signal chat, um, I got further information on the air raid and then it specified and said, OK, these have been identified. Uh, it, it, there were two incidents when I was there. The first one was a MiG launch. The second one was uh, some Shaheds. And they said, oh, the Shaheds should arrange in one of uh, our, they can change direction anytime, But we would anticipate they would arrive 1030 to 1130 p.m. And I was publicly out there on the, the app on the air raid. It's almost like there's a weather map of incoming indirect attacks uh, from the air, from the Russians. And I thought that was um, very interesting. Like I grew up in Minnesota with tornado alerts, right? And it would tell you the tornado alert is before the touchdown. The tornado warning is once the tornado has hit the ground. And so there's a public safety application. Um, so, so, so yeah, so kind of there's the order battle intelligence. There's the warning piece, which is putting this together across the whole of society, right? Then if there's a, a, an incident, and this is uh, what we would call COOP or COG on the U.S. and allied side, continuity of operations, continuity of government, right? Um, say an attack hits and there's a strike. Now I'm in hypothetical land because thankfully it did not happen when I was there. Um, it did the week prior. And mm. again, still people are out doing commerce, working, uh, fighting and resisting uh, the invasion. But bad things happen. And if something explodes... OSINT can support continuity of operations. Uh, and I think I'm gonna cite one really great one. Uh, and it also exemplifies physical courage and moral courage. When President Zelensky went live on social media, uh, the Russian propaganda was that the government had fled, everybody in Ukraine should just quit. And that actually aligned with kind of some earlier US government assessments and allied assessments that, that I think my biggest takeaway, right, was that the spirit of the Ukrainian people to fight is strong and was strong. And it was massively surprising to many, yes. both in the Russian side that did that launched this invasion, but then also on the allied side and say, wow, we have real partners that are gonna stick it out. But, but when Zelensky went on, it was verified that that was live and that was him. That inspires continuity of operations, not just for the government, but for those in the critical infrastructure sectors, for those that work at banks, for those that work in the food industry, right? Could you imagine if the entire grocery industry of Ukraine had decided to bug out um, because they heard their president and the government left? So that was a real-time continuity of operations, continuity of government, effectiveness of using open sources. Uh, then we can move into resilience and public safety, right? Um, Ukraine, perfect example, because we have like hot kinetic attacks in addition to the weather. Um, but, but that ties into think through even New York City. Right. New York City, City's uh, Emergency Preparedness uh, Commissioner Zach Iskell uh, served with me in Iraq in 2003, interestingly enough. 
but but Zach, um, I had a meeting with him and we talked about OSINT and we talked about the resilience aspects of open source intelligence, how it feeds into the work he does preparing public safety and disaster response, right? Because it can verify that a warehouse is available. It can verify that Home Depot does or does not have lumber. Sometimes, and forgive me for naming Home Depot, but it just came to mind because I know they do a lot of disaster recovery support, as does Walmart, as does Waffle House, right? When, when things go sideways in the United States, Waffle House is open. Right. Yep. And so, uh, so, so there's the resilience piece. And then the last piece, and this comes back to my earlier conversation about the atrocities and the possibility of atrocities. It OSINT creates an accountability framework and an accountability mechanism that may very well be admissible in international tribunals. There's a, a concept called the Berkeley protocol supported by the United Nations uh, and human rights activists and other uh, human rights lawyers, and I would put myself in that bucket. Yes, I'm a, a national security expert, but also I very much believe in individual human rights and dignity. Uh, that is the basis of our post-1947 world order. Um, and so when accountability needs to come into play, open source intelligence, if it's uh, collected, documented, aggregated, it can then be used as corroborating evidence uh, in a war crimes prosecution or even in a criminal prosecution. Uh, for things like theft, uh, you know, so, so um, yeah, so, so that was kind of my thing with chronology of OSINT across Ukraine as an example, all the, you know, very early order of battle, uh, intent of adversaries, warning of things like attacks, uh, continuity of operations, continuity of government in a crisis, and then you move through and it, you get to touch resilience and accountability, you know, so, so all of these things now are in a world where there's more data being produced than I mean, this, it's cliche to say it, but than ever before. So um, I really do believe this about the Ukrainian people and their military. Uh, when they have peace, when there is a victory secure, the professionals that are doing the work in Ukraine now, when they have trusted partners, they will have the most high value export of security expertise and security technology from anywhere on planet Earth. And that will help uh, security interests in Asia, South America, Africa, uh, everywhere. So um, anyway, sorry, it was a really long talk, but I was so inspired by the Ukrainian people. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in, in terms of looking at our future around OSINT and what we can learn from Ukraine, where where do you think we could take this? How do we, how do we apply it beyond the kind of resilience and public safety? How else could we use this? I'm sure you're thinking about it. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a, it's a yes and yes. Is, the, is kind of how I view OSINT. Um, there will always be benefit to espionage for any state, right? Uh, and there will be benefit to exquisite complex collection that is protected, right? Uh, if one of the functions of in intelligence writ large is providing insight and kind of truth telling, um, even validation of OSINT using those types of means is high value, right? Um, and so it's not just kind of mass society issues. These are in the U.S. side, you know, what will what, what information can get used to advise the president to make a decision? Right. What information can get used by the National Security Council and then proliferate out through the Pentagon or State Department or the Agency for International Development for counterterrorism? Right. Um, that's stuff that you do want to keep protected and, you know, kind of limit the sharing on sometimes. Right. When there's a, a really an exquisite national security or allied security component at stake. But um, 
One of the truly amazing things that I observed about open source intelligence in the form of what is kind of collected, exploitable material, sometimes called collected enemy material in terrorism, is uh, as a result of the last 20 years of counterterrorism work, a lot of collected material was uh, created. It has not all been digitized, but there is an operation for law enforcement um, in the Middle East that brings together the U.S., the Five Eyes, which are kind of the, the five core co former Commonwealth nations, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, uh, and the United States. Uh, and it all that all derives from kind of the, the, this very special relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom after World War II for intelligence sharing. Um, and then, there's, then there are bilateral partners from all over the world that are trusted security partners. And the best part about that, uh, that, that, uh, that effort for law enforcement using that collective material, which is unclassified, is everybody can take in that information and then use swivel chair access. So someone from a country in the Pacific uh, region may have a real interest in one kind of splinter group of Salafist terrorist activity. And they can take that and move forward with it in ways that perhaps the person who saw it first could have been in the Nordics or the Baltics, right? And, and that particular terrorist group is not of interest to them, but it is to their friend, right? And so they hand it over and that friendly ally can take the information, act on it. And that was based off open source intelligence or just open source information. It didn't become intelligence until it really became valuable to drive a decision. And, and I, I see you both nodding. So I know you agree with me that that's kind of a core component of intelligence. If it doesn't drive action and it doesn't support a decision process, then it's still, in my mind, that's information, right? right? And, and so um, I think kind of two things I observed in counterterrorism internationally that were so just awesome to watch in real time was swivel chair access. Human beings taking information in on common floorboards, being able to turn to a trusted friend on the floor, right? And then action it for further, either further investigation uh, or pass off to law enforcement or, or prosecution. And I just thought that was so cool. It also created a common threat picture, right. right? So there is the ability then for any one of those actors to take that information that came in open and classify it internal to themselves. Right. And this inverts the process. Right. Because you're not taking classified collected information and then trying to run it through a, a foreign disclosure process, right, to then share out. It was brought in, right, open, and then the bespoke tailored work can be done classified. And, and I do think the commercial sector is a little ahead on this, financial services in particular, right, um, because they know this. They've got to protect not just money, but facilities, uh, and they have big, big, those 15 biggest U.S. firms have people all over the planet, right? They, they definitely still do finance work in some very um, difficult parts of the world in emerging markets and what they call frontier markets, right? Where there might be a risk to their personnel, right? If, if a government decided they were just going to claim a bunch of property. So uh, they do want to stay ahead of it. And, and that's not classification for them, but it does become proprietary security information for them. And it's holistic and it's not only cybersecurity. It's physical security, personnel security, information security, and really hits on one of the, the, the important things Bill Evan, Bill Evan Edith spoke about was also insider threat. Um, and so, you know, I, th I think open source intelligence uh, serves a lot of different purposes. It's not the 100% solution, and it probably never should be. Um, but as a share of driving national, sorry, national security decision processes, 
for any allied country and as a share of percentage for driving decision processes for the commercial sector, it already is uh, the key component, really the only component unless the government shares out something. Um, so uh, add in some artificial intelligence and means of deriving ways of seeing patterns and anomalies that a human being can then review subsequently. And I think um, I'm very optimistic that this puts us and if the allies stay ahead of this, uh, it puts us in a place because we focus on transparency and inoperability anyway, it does put us in a place where we will ultimately push back uh, authoritarian overreach in places like Ukraine uh, and, and, and other places where we see it at risk in the Pacific and elsewhere in Europe. So what are some of the risks of using OSINT? Because yeah. you, you sat there and kind of went, yeah, and artificial intelligence, these sort of things. What about deep fakes and seeding things into OSINT that yes. are not real and, and where you want to swivel things in a different direction? A hundred percent. And um, I think it was Dick Helms when he was the director of CIA. I could be wrong on which director. I think it was Dick Helms said uh, an intelligence agency's uh, effectiveness is is only as great as its counterintelligence uh, function. And uh, that wasn't James Jesus Angleton that said it. It was a, a director that said it. And so I think um, when we talk about OSINT, then yes, we have to think about the counters to manipulation of OSINT, right? Um, and so that, that in my mind does include things like deepfakes. And I'll also add that the other ints, if you will, all come with costs and benefits. That's why we want to use a holistic approach to these things, right? Um, I do think there's a real time issue where the deepfakes concern uh, really raises like challenges. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, it, it does kind of turn into who do you believe, right? And that Zelensky incident where the FaceTime from the street, we were, we were at a point in the technology curve where there aren't deep, fake, deep fakes accurate enough, right? That if the Russians started promoting a separate live stream that showed Zelensky in a helicopter on his way to Switzerland, um, that, it, well, which one do I believe? Um, so, so I do, but, but, but I think that's another component of why, particularly in, in the allied space, what I would call the free world, right? It's, it's the United States, UK, our five eyes partners, the NATO alliance, and then plus a lot of bilateral security partners that are all committed to this defense of individual human liberty. There's a whole lot of other stuff you can get into, but people should never be murdered by their government without cause, right? And so those of us that kind of share and, and a fair business playing field and rule of law, like what are the values that we all hold, even if we have some disagreements on the specifics yeah. around them? Um, and I do, I do think that that, that alliance, that very broad alliance, um, by focusing on how to use open source intelligence and creating vetting and verification tools that are trusted and can be exposed to transparent, right? That then creates a higher trust. I do think in the long run, authoritarian regimes, right? In the short run, it looks like, oh, they're going to, you know, they'll beat us because they'll be able to do deep fakes. And they'll be, well, what's their weakness? They're brittle, right? Um, the Chinese Ministry of State Security, the, the Russian SBR and GRU, the, these proxy networks, the Internet Research Agency, why are they brittle, right? They're brittle because they abuse people inside and outside for, for one part. And the, and the other part is we are okay with our tools being subject to public scrutiny. 
right? And so there's a long-term strategic values-driven piece with our commitment to transparency that the things that we do, and, and whether it's under secret intelligence or unclassified open source intelligence, that we will stand by them. And there may be warts sometimes, there may be missteps, but they do uh, get exposed to public scrutiny and, I, and, and then investigated and lessons learned in advance. And I do think that's a massive difference uh, in values and worldview uh, about how we will be using open source intelligence that, uh, that that really will help. And I could use NATO as an example, right? Uh, because you got 31 member states, maybe 32 uh, if, if Sweden gets in this in the near future. Um, but that's 30, that's 31 or 32 member states, all of whom will benefit from interoperable practices for vet validation and verification of what is true and what is not true. And transparent means to share it with their um, the public at large and the whole society. That's uh, I really like your your mention of NATO because it's one of my favorite favorite topics too. When we start looking at this conflict and you know how do you define you know war in the cyber sense, um, but also you know kind of what what is NATO's role, right? And and in, in these kind of conflicts and you know because to deep dip the toe in the water uh, is a pretty significant act. And I'd be interested in your perspective there. And just a sidebar, we we had met with um, the CEO of Wissecure who's in Finland. Uh, and he was telling us about Finland joining and, you know, and all the potential repercussions that could come with them uh, joining NATO uh, at this time. So it's, it's such an interesting time. I'd love, I'd love to hear more from kind of where, where you sit here and what, what your perspective is. Yeah, no, I mean, first, first I'll just say, you know, I think NATO um, is not as well understood in the United States no. at large no. as it is here in Europe uh, or even here in Britain. Uh, in Great Britain, um, people really value NATO. As, as, as a core common defense component because, right, and, and certainly in the Nordics they do. Um, and when you saw the, the Putin regime, the oligarchs and that kind of, I mean, it's like a post-communist uh, aggressor state invade Ukraine, it caused an avalanche of interest in Sweden, Finland, and even some others that, that you know, are not quite publicly disclosed, but they're interested. Uh, other European countries that previously were committed to neutrality um, are now like, oh my God, I need a common defense provision and I need to be interoperable with my partners. So, um, you know, and for instance, here in the United Kingdom, even um, if I walk down the street in the UK, I can't walk past a, a local government office or a post office uh, that doesn't fly a Union Jack uh, British flag and also a Ukrainian yellow and blue flag. And I think, again, I think that's part of the, the this city um, where I live now did endure the blitz. Um, London kept functioning. They sent children to the countryside. They lived through World War II. It was a different set of enemies, right, with a different ideology, perhaps. But they understand that this, the whole of society has to withstand these attacks uh, and be resilient and that there's value in the alliance itself. So, um, I mean, I, th I think, again, you know, it's a personal hope as a, as a U.S. citizen living abroad that uh, more folks in the United States will really understand how valuable NATO is. Yes. Uh, as a as a coalition effort and how it does bring us together uh, and provide a whole lot of information. The, the other piece on NATO, NATO can create interoperability standards, right? So each individual member state um, has upside of becoming interoperable and then getting common defense access, common defense sharing. There's a, there's a NATO intelligence fusion center, uh, sometimes called NIFIC. Right. But the NATO Intelligence Fusion Center brings those people together. You have common floorboards, ability to share information. Uh, there are IT systems. And so it creates an allied network. And I think that might be one of the greatest strengths of NATO 
is integrated intelligence and planning because NATO uh, is not like the United States. It can't command forces in the same way. And, you know, you have 31 or maybe 32 soon individual member states, each with their own military services, their own intelligence services. Uh, But NATO can create common standards. Uh, Also, entry to NATO is contingent upon a nation adopting certain transparency, human rights commitments, uh, and and values-driven commitments that really were the underpinning of why we now have the the world order we do uh, after 1947. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think NATO is an incredible force multiplier for the United States. Uh, and I think its value, you know, if it, if it was something that the White House kind of, you know, typical international relations, I went to an Ivy League school and I get a job at the White House type thing. You know, what's a NATO? They didn't they didn't really think about it much because they're more worried about great power competition. I think now after Ukraine, holy smokes, uh, every single international relations theory school is talking about NATO uh, and its play not only in Europe but also as a model for how you build alliances in the Pacific mm-hmm. and in Africa, frankly, right? Right. So, um, cause the great power competition plays out globally, uh, you know, between the U S UK allies. And I'm not trying to be nation specific or nation centric about it. I just am American. Um, and, um, and, and really a, a set of challenges from, from the communist party of China on one hand and from the Putin regime on the other. Uh, in addition to the usual uh, scary stuff like terrorism and transnational crime. That's fantastic. Very much answered the question. Thank you. Yeah, Absolutely. It's, it's an exciting time for NATO. And and I think to your point, a lot a lot of the folks in America don't don't really understand it uh, or or the opportunity there uh, for sure. And, and that's kind of, you know, some of what we like to do on the podcast too is try to raise awareness of, of these kind of needs, uh, you know, because the, the more you learn, the more power there is in that for sure. And we're trying to be a little bit more international about what we're talking about. <laughs> so it's it's good to have perspective. <laughs> we're kind of we're kind of international. I mean, I, I'm in London. You guys are. I'm in Texas. Where? Yeah, I'm 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 in Malvern and Worcestershire. <laughs> there we go. So so I'd say we're international here. Yeah. Let's just bring in somebody from Toronto with some pancakes and maple syrup and bam, you know, we're and then we're sorted. Excellent. So can we before before we kind of head off in any other directions, could are you happy to give us kind of your origin story? So how you came to being living in London and kind of leading an international business and and that side of things because you you certainly have a very interesting not very direct route on how you got there and i always found those pathways far more interesting yes um yeah i'm gonna give you my origin story so first off uh i always get asked my nickname Uh, my nickname is swede and uh yes i'm scandinavian but but uh it was an independent nickname that originated when i was in the marines and i was raised predominantly by my grandfather uh who was the child of a swedish immigrant and his nickname was Sweet. And so when I got dubbed independently of that with that nickname, I was like, man, I'm going to honor that guy uh, and, and run with it. So um, but but how did how did I get to be Swede from Andrew Barine from Medina, Minnesota was um, I worked at an investment bank after college. I went to McAllister College in Minnesota, which is a big international focus. Uh, I think at the time I 
uh, enrolled, it was 30% international students. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I thought it would be international related somehow. Um, and I worked at a bank for a couple of years. This was really peak what we used to call Pax Americana uh, before 9-11 and after uh, the push of uh, the Iraqi army back into Iraq and bottled them up with Operation Northern Watch and Southern Watch. Um, and I was, uh, so I was working at a bank because that was about as exciting a job you could find with potential for international uh, stuff. And I read a book called The, Ug uh, the Ugly American, and it was from like the 50s or 60s. Um, but it had all these vignettes about individual Americans, whether they were in the military or working for a development company or they were missionaries. And they're working in this fictional uh, country in um, South Asia and, and really doing amazing things. And it was like the American policy writ large was a little screwed up. And the, the State Department and, and a lot of the kind of top layer uh, plutocracy, if you will, never got out of the embassy. So they didn't really see the world as it was or what was happening in this, country, this fictional country of Sarkhan. But the guy that went and built a bike factory had a human relationship and it was really vital. And an intelligence officer that built some trusted relationships with a, a military partner and a missionary that like did a little test on a local uh, with, with carrying goods that he could create a supply line uh, of relief and aid. It was, um, so I guess I kind of took away from this like, wow, I got to do something with my life. And um, I applied to uh, three agencies, the CIA, the Peace Corps, and the Marine Corps. Uh, and, and people are always like, wait, you applied to Peace Corps and the Marine Corps and the CIA? Like, how is that possible? And I said, actually, it makes a ton of sense, right? It was the late 1990s. Uh, and I wanted to be part of, I wanted to be granular and on the ground and part of showing people in the world what America really stood for, you know? And uh, as fate would have it, the Marine Corps had the fastest path to entry. They said, if you can get through officer candidate school, uh, you know, like half of people didn't make it through back then because it was pre-war Marine Corps. And they said, if you can get through this training on the other side of it, we guarantee you, you'll be someplace ugly, uh, leading <laughs> Marines in seven months to 12 months, depending on your occupational specialty. Wonderful. And they, like, they, they didn't lie. They delivered uh, the, the, you know, and, and I would have been, honestly, I would have been just as happy coming into international relations through, through the Peace Corps, you know, hey, go build a well someplace and learn the language. I, I would have loved that. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, I, I do. I, I am a huge fan of the people of CIA and the broader intelligence community. Uh, at the time I was applying, that kind of was the only game in town because Intelligence Reform Terrorism Prevention Act had not been passed. There was no such thing as the ODNI. Um, there really was just a, a, a director, an assistant director function for community management where CIA was kind of trying to bring together some other components. Um, but really transnational issues even were led by the Central Intelligence Agency. And I think um, so. So I certainly if, if it were Andrew Barine, 20 something uh, applying for a career doing international things related to security uh, and overseas, uh, I, I would have been open to a whole bunch of other different agencies now. And, and I really do encourage um, young people I've been teaching for since 2007, a number of graduate schools and colleges. Um, and I always encourage folks to, to get out and do something, you know, um, don't just sit in the classroom, um, you know, go do something. And if you pursue your passion, the money works out. And, and I guess this is how we get to your question. You know, I've been, I've been in business, I've been in government, I've been in business, I've been in government. It kind of takes a, a little, uh, like a, a rhythm. It, it, um, and then I went to law school uh, somewhere along the way. Um, but, um, but I, yeah, 
I have been pursuing how can I work with things related to human rights law uh, and the, the rule of law, the basic fundamental principles of what keeps human society civilized. Uh, and um, kind of how do we use force in ways that comply with that, right? Um, nobody wants to fight, but somebody has to know how was one of the recruiting posters for the Mar literally like that's why I went to the Marine Corps. So I didn't know anything about really which services do what stuff. Uh, I love Green Berets. I seriously do. I love Green Berets and the mission of the oppressor, the bear and teaching people to cast off tyranny is like the coolest thing I could think of in the world. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm saying hats off to the, the Green Beret hat guys. Um, but the Marines did have that side and said nobody wants to fight, but somebody has to know how. And, and, it, and I, I keep that in mind quite a bit uh, throughout my career. You know, that was 23 years ago or longer, I guess, uh, according to a, to a standard form I got from the government. But um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but um, I got out, I did something. And 20 plus years later, uh, I now am at Flashpoint uh, trying to build ecosystems around open source intelligence that will support not just military or national security decision makers, but also uh, will we'll benefit benefit the U.S. and our security partners all over the planet. Brilliant. That's exciting. Yeah, I like. I mean, that, but that's somehow like the the best life plan, right? I mean, you just you keep following, you know, kind of where your your passion lies, and, and how do you make an impact and a difference? I mean, it's amazing what one person can do. We we had a, a fellow on Josh Corman on uh, several months ago, and he started this organization called I Am the Cavalry. You know, because I like that one person and, you know, and, and even, you know, three people can make such a difference. You just have to kind of put yourself out there and take that step forward. So it's it's a great message for folks to hear. I also yeah. think and it's I, I important. Think, um, no, I mean, I, go ahead. Sorry. No, I think it's important, as you were saying, people also should get out and look around. And, and you know, if they just want to look around in the U.S., get fine. The but there's a yeah, there's yeah. there's a much bigger yeah. world out there really is. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I will say this too, it is scary. It is frightening. You know, once, once we kind of find out what it is that drives us about where we want to add value, I think the Japanese call it ikigai, right? Like, what am I good at? What am I interested in? Uh, what gives me joy? And what is the world willing to pay me for? Right. It's like when all of that Venn diagram comes together, right. um, it gets kind of scary. Right. Because now I'm pursuing a thing that gives me joy and adds value to the world, but I don't really know where it's going to lead. Right. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, let's bring it back to open source intelligence. I mean, that's often how these OSINT investigations work. Uh, I just read a book called We Are Bellingcat um, about kind of a Bellingcat loose group of investigators that started investigating really hard topics like the poisoning of Navalny uh, wow. by the Russian services. And they, like, they just got going and they started working it. They didn't know where the thread would take them. And then they teamed up with some, you know, recognized international media, which then led to, uh, you know, disclosure of a lot of things that talked about that full spectrum back to accountability. So um, I think if I, if I had a trend, I would say this, um, if I could have a role from Flashpoint or from anywhere, you know, working with the partners at NATO, working with the U.S. security partners. And I'm going to limit it to that because I'm not super interested personally in helping countries that do not share uh, the values uh, that, that, that I find foundational and that I took an oath to preserve multiple times and defend. Um, but it's that we need to professionalize that effort. Right. So it's not, you know, amateurs can get involved 
right? And the NGO community involved, and then on up through into like highly skilled, you know, OSINT operators, collectors, analysts, call it a professionalization of that workforce, and then into the governments themselves. Um, but I do think we need to think about ethical standards. Uh, we need to think about best practices that align with the Berkeley Protocol, right? Um, and we need to make sure, I say this, I'm a former chief privacy officer uh, for Bill Evanino when he was the director at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. And what I loved about that job is Bill Evanino made it a point that we would never violate the privacy uh, of Americans or American companies. And um, he was the best client I ever could have asked for as a privacy officer, right? Uh, and, and so I, I, I do think that that's another component of it that we have to think through because not every nation in the alliance has the same expectations for privacy, right? right? The, the, the general uh, data privacy regulation for Europe is not the same as U.S. privacy, is not the same as the cloud protections uh, across the Atlantic for the United States, the United Kingdom that are rolling out right now. Um, so again, let's think of OSINT creating interoperability while allowing individual nations uh, their individual needs. Right. And, and I think I do think that's stuff that we can start professionalizing uh, and continue to kind of rally around uh, using an using an alliance uh, or collaborative model. It's such an exciting time. I kind of wish I was like 30 years younger, Andrew, so I could be at this time, you know, starting off on my journey versus starting a long, long time ago. Uh, I, I imagine for, you know, I, I guess for for any of our young listeners who might be in college right now or high school, um, you know, please embrace these opportunities. They, they are wonderful. Uh, and you can make such an impact, um, your community on the world. Uh, it's, it's kind of incredible. Just take that first step. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I think open source intelligence creates, uh, you know, I'm going to say another, um, uh, Dan Coates was the director of national intelligence. And I really, I, I thought as a civil servant, it's not a political statement. I just thought he, he cared so much about the workforce. And he really made it a point to assert mission. Uh, and, and what he said is part of the job is to seek the truth and to speak the truth, right? And open source intelligence creates a vehicle for governments, NGOs, private sector, individuals. You know, uh, Rachel, I mean, we're, we're, we're not that old. We could, we could get involved still. <laughs> yeah, we, can, we can learn new tricks. We can That's all right. contribute. Yeah. But in the face, right, in the face of falsehood, in the face of state-sponsored falsehood and attacks on individuals and, 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 and supporting their theft, whether it's insiders like Bill was talking about or cyber means that Chris Krebs or Megan Stiffel would have been talking about, right? Um, all of us in the free world really can be part of a solution. Um, but again, I, I just want to say it's not the solution, right? It's not the 100%. Well, OSINT is everything. No, it is a significantly more important component of uh, societal resilience and policymaker uh, information, and and so and, and military information, and and I think this is an exciting time for it, right? As the the new technology of AI allows us to see a lot more, a lot faster. Exactly. I was I was wondering if AI would come up in conversation today. I'm very excited you said that. <laughs> that could be a whole other podcast discussion. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I, I do want to respect your time, Andrew. Thank you so much for today's conversation. 
Um, you know, just so many wonderful insights, particularly the discussion on Ukraine. I, I think, you know, particularly with the U.S. perspective, um, you know, that's that's not as high on folks' radar and it needs to be um, because there's there's so much to learn there, but also, um, you know, so much to be proud of there for that that group and community, especially, you know, watching so many, you know, kind of countries around the world come together to help support that. Um, it's it's a really wonderful time, I think, um, in in our society to see that. And I, I think there's there's more partnership to be had for sure. So again, thank you, Andrew. It's It's been wonderful hearing your background and all the great stories that you have to share with our listeners. Thank you, Rachel and Audra. And, uh, and, and I'll just say thank you for what you're doing here, right? This is a really cool podcast. Uh, I've listened to a bunch of episodes um, and uh, I, I really humbled to have been asked to do this. And I hope, again, please keep the Ukrainian people uh, and their struggle in your hearts to all the listeners. Uh, and know that there are other people that will be uh, perhaps sooner than we would like to see it uh, struggling for their own freedom uh, against authoritarian regimes. And this is uh, it's an interesting moment in history. I didn't expect to be here. Uh, if you would have asked me 30 years ago when I was 18 years old and <laughs> graduated from high school, uh, that we would have a pandemic uh, and that you know we'd have a terror- counterterrorism campaign. And now we really do uh, face a, a values driven struggle uh, between authoritarian regimes and the freedom values that we share. So thank you both for everything you're doing uh, on that conversation. Absolutely. And, and thank you to all of our listeners out there for joining us uh, for another awesome conversation with an amazing guest. Uh, so till every, uh, till next time, till next week, everybody, uh, please be secure. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. 